All right, welcome again to another episode of LEO Radio. I'm uh, Jason Felsing, an instructor from J. Harris Academy of Police Training, and with me is... Joey Spilaza, also an instructor with J. Harris Academy of Police Training. We have an interesting uh, episode for you today. At least I think it's pretty interesting. There was a case out of the Supreme Court of Idaho, state of Idaho versus Kirby Anthony Dorff. And it focuses on, you know, canine searches at the exterior of a vehicle. It, it's interesting. So we're going to dig into that and kind of compare with uh, the state of New Jersey and some other key cases that we've talked about. So I'm going to start with the facts. So this case stemmed from a night in August uh, in 2019. An officer from the Mountain Home Police Department initiated a traffic stop. He said he saw the driver make an improper turn, cross three lanes of traffic, the usual. Once he stopped the vehicle, the driver, who was Dorf, Kirby Dorf, told the officer he did not have a valid driver's license or proof of insurance in the vehicle. Uh, so at that point, a canine officer just arrived on the scene. It was not requested. The canine in this case is Nero. So the officer obviously circled the vehicle with Nero. Nero never entered the interior compartment of the vehicle at all. However, there was a couple passes where body camera footage saw Nero uh, make two potential contacts with the vehicle, one of which was an explicit content with the, uh, contact that they say here in the case uh, with the vehicle's exterior surface. Uh, basically, he placed his front paws up to stand on the door and window as he sniffed the vehicle's upper seams. So, you know, where the door meets, you know, the body of the vehicle. Uh, following the alert, the officer, his handler, obviously said that there was an alert. They searched the vehicle. They find a pill bottle, some folded papers, a baggie. They all have white residue that they find up testing with meth. Um, then they wind up finding on Dorf's person, once they place him under arrest, a motel room key. The plot thickens. Um, they wind up getting a search warrant for this motel room where they discover a bunch more meth and other drug paraphernalia. So Dorf 19 gets grams of meth. That's a lot. a lot of meth. It's a lot of meth. <laughs> so the state brought three charges against Dorf at that point. Obviously, possession with intent to deliver, possession of meth, and possession of paraphernalia. So then Dorf, of course, is upset about this. He wishes to suppress. He claims that Nero, the dog, the canine, trespassed on his vehicle. That's the key for this case. Trespassed on his vehicle, and there was a warrantless search. And then that the sniff was improperly conducted. And there was no PC probable cause for the search of the vehicle. So that's obviously going to throw all that meth and stuff away. Um, the searches immediately, or the, the courts immediately rather, found that everything was constitutional. Um, but then, obviously, the plot thickened here. And there was more. Yeah, so especially when you look at the, uh, the, the facts pattern, it doesn't look like it would be anything intentional on the part of the officer. But... It's been widely held that a trained police canine is held to the same standard as one of us, right? So other cases, before you even look at the opinion, and these are two cases that they talk about inside of the opinion, there's Rodriguez versus United States, which says that we don't need reasonable suspicion to conduct a canine sniff of the exterior of a vehicle. So we know we're good on that. Then there's Florida versus Jardines. In that case, they found that the evidence was suppressed because they brought the the dog to the curtilage of a home. And one of the interesting factors looking here, when you look at a home, we have a constitutionally protected curtilage. That's your driveway. That's your, your porch. And there's tons of cases that talk about curtilage. But it's also very widely found that there is no such thing as curtilage when it comes to a car. And they even talk about that in Rodriguez. But 
the evidence was suppressed in Florida versus Jardines because they said that the the opinion, the justice actually said, marching his bloodhound into the garden before saying hello and asking permission would inspire most of us to call the police. So they want us to recognize as the police that there's an area that it's acceptable for us to go, but it's not acceptable for us to bring our canine. So in this opinion, they actually talked about the intermeddling. And when you look at intermeddling, that's where they transmit. Uh, that's where they, they are able to look at the opinion of trespass. So they said for us, when we're on a motor vehicle stop, if we're putting our head inside of a car because we're on the highway and we're unable to hear the the person that we're stopping because of the passing traffic, it's acceptable for us to put our head in there. We're not putting our head inside of a car to with the hopes of finding evidence. We're doing it because it's part of our function. They're holding the canine to a different uh, status and a different um, different type of level that we need to understand and that's what she said here in the uh, in the actual written opinion the intermeddling aspect of it if someone directs their hand onto your purse or their dog jumps onto your vehicle without privilege or consent no one without a doubt would would uh hesitate their right to protest and exclaim hey get your hands off my purse or hey get your dog off my car versus somebody brushing up against you or versus a, a dog wagging their tail passing by and just uh, kind of touching the car in, inadvertently. So here, when they talked about the the intermeddling and the trespass, that's what they're focusing on, the purposeful intent of the dog. So because the dog was purposely putting his paws on the car, that's what they, that they're looking at. And even though that looks like it's de minimis, that's what they were, um, that's what they were focusing on. And Joe, I'll tell you, the, the phrase that really got me on this one, I mean, obviously understanding search and seizure case laws pivotal regardless of what state you work in, but the fact that they brought up that dog's tail brushing against the bumper of a vehicle as a completely different facet than, than approaching and jumping on, just think of it's not even a dog, just think of somebody who approaches your vehicle and sits on it, or touches the hood, or, you know, stands on your window at door, it's, it's improper, and the canines are held to the same standard that the officers are. You know, they're, they are trained officers. They get funerals. I mean, they're, they're, they're officers. But furthermore, they move on to that, the, the chattels have a protected area of curtilage. Obviously, we know cars don't have curtilage. It hasn't been that way. The free air sniff is a free air sniff. But the way that this case kind of went with the decision, they really did kind of change intermeddling, like you discussed, into that exterior or its interior. So they added the exterior of the vehicle. Sure. And I mean, it, it even goes to thinking outside of the box of this particular case. It's like if you have somebody that's walking through parking lots and pulling on door handles, that's a lot different, right? So uh, what's the intent of somebody pulling on door handles? It's obviously to burglarize a vehicle. Of course. So they're looking, they're looking at, again, it's... It's not something that's ever been discussed before, so that's why it's worth us talking about it. It's also worth noting this is going to the U.S. Supreme Court, so they're going to we're going to have a U.S. Supreme Court opinion on this if they decide to hear the case. So it's a uh, just difficult to, to wrap your head around this particular concept, especially because dogs are trained but still relatively unpredictable while, while they're working. Um, Cindy Glazier. Uh, one of our other instructors, she, I was talking to her about this case, and she brought up a uh, case out of New Jersey that was just found, settled in March of 2023. In this particular case, while the dog was sniffing the, the exterior of the car, he used his mouth, bit the handle, and actually opened up the door. 
But when you look at the uh, case, it's uh, State versus uh, Nestor Balbi, B-A-L-B-I. They, um, they said that the biting of the door handle was actually part of the indication. And uh, the officer that was doing the canine sniff immediately closed the door afterwards. So this one was actually upheld. But um, I don't know. What do you think about this particular case? Do you think it's going when it gets heard by the U.S. Supreme Court, do you think they'll reverse it or do you think they're going to keep it the way it is? I don't know. I mean, it really depends. I mean, we can talk politics forever. We're not trying to get into that. But I think it's such an interesting, different side of, of searches. I mean, obviously, canine sniffs and open air have been there since way before you and I, you know, have been in this profession. But I like the Balby case. Obviously, it's only New Jersey specific because I think that the officer, the handler, did such a good job of immediately closing that door. I don't know about the argument. Obviously, I'm not a judge. You're not a judge about the 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 biting of the door handle being a part of a, you know, the, the hit that's odd for me. I, I've never seen a canine do that. I don't know if you have either. That's a unique side for me, but that's a good case. scratch. I've never seen them bite. At I've the seen door tons of scratches, you know, obviously just kind of raking down and you always kind of feel bad, but you know, it's part of it, I guess. But that case, I don't think it'll even get used. Hopefully they, they look at a couple different things. I think that they should look at all the cases we talked about already. They have to look into the Florida case. They have to look into other cases across the country. But it's it's unique to me. I think that losing the way that most dogs or most canines are trained to hit on these cars, they're going to have to completely change how canines are trained and how the hit is. It's going to have to be some sort of other, uh, you know, thing that the dog does. You know, is it going to have to bark at the car without touching it? I mean, how close can the dog get? I'm not a canine handler, so that's tough for me to say how hard that training would be. But if there's, yeah, I don't know you know, what, I don't know what a dog smells, obviously, but I don't even know how much from the exterior, especially now that in New Jersey marijuana is legal. I mean, I've driven behind cars where you could smell four cars away; you could smell the marijuana coming easy. out of it. But uh, like when you have well-packaged heroin or cocaine. I don't know how easy it's going to be for a canine to actually sniff it without getting right up on the seams. And again, so I know their, their noses make... are crazy more powerful than ours. I get it. And there's probably stats out there with, you know, how many times, you know, more potent their nose is. But still, they're going through all those barriers of the wrapping. If they're not able to get right up on that door, they're going through the different metals, materials, plastics. I don't know what they're going to smell. So is the canine going to be yeah. viable for narcotics work anymore? Yeah. I, I don't know. And uh, it's, it's interesting, too, when you look at this, it, it all it talks about uh, two other cases inside of the opinion from Idaho. Uh, there's case Howard out of Idaho and a case mm -hmm. Jones. Um, in Jones, they talk about, like, Jones, a U.S. case, they, that was talking about a GPS installation um, to follow a target vehicle and that constituted a search and that's pretty reasonable because Makes you're sense. using that to track yeah you're using that to track somebody's movement and to be able to put this up against that case where's your expectation of privacy on the exterior of the vehicle and what is your expectation of privacy of your vehicle moving around over the course of mm -hmm. 30 days and the amount of information that's gathered from the police over a 30-day period tracking your search is a lot different than a canine putting his paws on the vehicle for, for a momentary span, right? And um, in Howard, it talks about intermeddling and the intermeddling with the exterior and breaching. So while they said that, obviously, and we've 
hopefully have all known this, especially canine handlers, if you put the vehicle, the dog inside of the vehicle, that would be considered a trespass, which with respect to the search. But um, I don't really see how this is true intermeddling by having the dog minimally put their paws on on the vehicle with the purpose of uh, of obtaining that sniff. But I guess it really be Again, the opinion of the justices at that point. The case doesn't even go into explicit detail of exactly how long. I mean, it's but mere seconds that this dog's paws are on, on the door of this vehicle to do the sniff. Uh, is this yeah, something sure. that they're going to have to discern how long? You know, like, oh, a dog can only touch this vehicle for under five seconds. I mean, I don't see how they're going to be able to put some sort of harsh time frame on that. Yeah, and even going back to the curtilage discussion, again, this is a New Jersey case and not one that would be considered by the U.S. Supreme Court, but New Jersey versus Jessup was a Jersey City case where a guy was uh, selling heroin and his um, he was keeping his heroin on the top of a car tire. And the Jersey City officer was doing his surveillance and he saw where the heroin was being kept. And the question here was, that the car was parked in a driveway and he put his hand over into the tire well to to retrieve that item and the question was was that considered a search that would have been subject to a warrant and here it was found no because of the fact that it was there's no expectation of privacy on a car tire so it just adds more to that curtilage discussion so your car tire and the area underneath the vehicle there's other cases where searches have been done other, under these vehicles where it's mostly plain view but there's no there's no expectation of privacy especially due to the inherent mobility of that vehicle so i don't really see how you're going to have a curtilage discussion with respect to Florida versus Jardines, or bringing that into this case. I could just only imagine the the broad sweeping ramifications, kind of, if if there's some sort of massive decision by the you know the United States Supreme Court. I mean, if they're gonna give such an expectation of privacy to vehicles, it's gonna change. I mean, I, I can only imagine you know two thirds of the states are extremely liberal with vehicles, but yeah. I mean, obviously New Jersey vehicles are you know not that difficult, way different than, than homes or residences or buildings. I'm sure most states follow suit, but I can only imagine how crazy the job's going to change if that happens. I mean, obviously I'm not a canine guy, but working alongside them, <laughs> we, they deal with enough. Sure. They're keeping this animal alive. They have it well-trained. They're getting retrained and now they're going to completely change how they do their job. It's going to be a, a definite need for retraining for all the canine officers. In my department, we have 17, 18 dogs. So, yeah, be completely re retraining all of these guys shortly. So we don't even have dogs. We uh, we call in from the county. We do have a couple other agencies that utilize it. So I don't see them as often. Uh, down at the Jersey Shore, you see a lot of, obviously, business in the summertime. So they'll be around, so you see them more frequently. But... On a regular traffic stop, you're just not going to have the canine. So it's a little bit more of a foreign premise, at least in my agency. Sure. But it's interesting nonetheless. Yeah. Anything else on this particular case? I, I think it warrants a little bit of note that right at the end after the conclusion, obviously uh, the defendant, Dorf, his conviction was vacated. Everything was completely, you know, was reversed. But there was immediately two judges that dissented. And then the one, uh, Moeller, immediately wrote a sweeping three-and-a-half-page dissension. So I, I think it's going to be highly contended. I think that's 
certainly something that warrants discussion here, that this shouldn't be an easy decision for the United States Supreme Court. Sure. And I spoke to uh, Cindy Glazier, again, our, uh, one of our instructors. She's uh, uh, an assistant prosecutor at the county level. And she said the same thing. She doesn't see this being upheld at the U.S. Supreme Court. But uh, for those of our listeners out in Idaho, you need to understand though, that this is a decision that's going to impact you immediately. So they should be having these discussions and retraining and talking now about it. And hopefully when it gets to that U.S. Supreme Court level, they're able to reverse the decision and uh, go back to doing things the way that we've been doing it. For sure. For sure. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting, too, because when you uh, when you look at these cases and the more you get into case law, it just shows you that process and procedures absolutely matter, right? Like the order of events matter, where the where the indication was matters. And Completely. At what point? Yeah, right? It's like, at what point was the first indication? If there was an indication prior to putting the pause on the uh, the car, this wouldn't even be a discussion. Could have been done with. Could have been done it's with. It's irrelevant at that point, right? Because your your search would be justified. And I mean, it's important to, to why we review case law to begin with, right? Understanding fact patterns, understanding those orders of events so that when we're faced with similar situations out on the street, we're prepared for those situations because we don't want to, we don't, you know, we don't want to make bad case law either, right? The, Nobody the more does. That these fact patterns are straightforward and we're doing things in the proper order, the better it turns out and the more likely you are to get that conviction. You don't have to go through suppression hearings. You don't have to uh, go through all these um, all these different hoops to try to get that conviction. Because at the end of the day, you want to get the drugs and guns off the street, right? That's the goal. I guess the biggest issue here, too, is they cite the body-worn camera footage, and I get it. Body-worn cameras are here to stay. I think that they're an absolute wonderful tool. But the courts, you know, defense attorneys, everybody has that same look. So it's going to come into tying in proper report writing, which is not going anywhere. I, I was kind of was hoping once body-worn cameras came out, there'd be a little bit more see body-worn camera and reports. But you just can't rest on that. Report writing's huge. You have to understand what your camera's yeah. seeing. I, I would imagine at some point they're probably going to put cameras on dogs. Uh, that'd be a whole <laughs> other interesting thing. But, you know, they'll put a GoPro on them like those dogs yep. you see uh, running the uh, obstacle courses. Uh-huh. <laughs> I believe it. I mean, who knows? That way they can see exactly what the dog's seeing, how close they are. God forbid the handler is a little bit off on an angle. Sure. But it's interesting. It's an interesting case. Yeah. Not to go too far off topic. Maybe this will be uh, one of the topics for our next one. But the uh, it's especially important that that accurate report writing because. Number one, body cameras obviously don't capture all angles. It doesn't capture all of the officer's senses, whether it's uh, sight, sound, smell, touch, etc. But um, more importantly, too, you don't want to forget about good report writing because here in New Jersey, and I'm sure that everywhere else is following suit, we can't review our body cameras in those instances where we use deadly force or discharge a firearm or there's serious bodily injury or even if there's a IA complaint lodged against us. So... Don't get spoiled with just using your body camera footage. I remember when we first got the body cams, I had a DWI. Guys love like, oh, using you know it for DWI. I'm not taking yeah, any notes. Like, no notes. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I said. I was like, I'm not going to take any notes. So I'm going to get just, I'm just going to review my body cam footage. And it took me like two hours to write the report because I'm sitting there going back and looking. Pausing, at it. rewinding. It, it would have been so much easier for me to do this the way I've always done it, take my notes. And I w- immediately went back to taking roadside notes. And I mean, that's just me. And I think that's the most effective way to do it. 
But, um, you know, with all these cases, too, it's like if there's something you're experiencing that wasn't on your body camera, it's so important to articulate that. And more importantly, if you get into that situation where you're not allowed to review your body camera, you better know how to write a report without your body camera. Because, I mean, at this point, we've been using them since 2017, I think. 2017, 2018. So yeah, we started. We have a significant amount of officers that have only worked under the body camera, so they don't even remember what it was like to write a report prior to that. It's a lost art. Yeah, yeah. But maybe that'll be our next topic. We'll try yeah, to, we can uh, delve into that for then. sure. Because I know, and again, if he, anybody he has any other, so deep uh, into that. I think it's a good time to plug if anybody has any ideas that they wish to be spoken with, or perhaps something they're passionate about. We are seeking uh, dedicated, qualified guests for the podcast. So, you know, we're totally open to speak about different things across the country. If you're a report writing guru and you think it's something you're passionate about, reach out to us. Absolutely. All right. With that, I think we'll uh, we'll wrap it up. Until next time. So again, Joey Spraza. Jason Felsing. We'll uh, tune in next time. Stay safe. Stay safe, everybody. This podcast is brought to you by the J. Harris Academy of Police Training. J. Harris Academy of Police Training is based in New Jersey and provides law enforcement training services nationwide for promotional examinations, use of force, supervisory development, and other key areas within law enforcement. This podcast is utilized to discuss key topics occurring within the profession. The opinions and information provided is for entertainment purposes only. In an effort to provide this, we often purposely discuss opposite views and opinions to spark conversation and develop discussion points. The contents of the show and show notes are all copyrighted. All blog posts, podcasts, and show notes that are distributed to the public for free can be redistributed via hard copy or electronic copy for free only if the J. Harris Academy of Police Training is included as the acknowledged author within the actual media that is redistributed. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog. Under no circumstances shall the J. Harris Academy of Police Training, any guests, contributors to the podcast or blog, or any employees, associates, or affiliates of the company be responsible for damages arising from the use of the information provided.